Welcome to Integrative Conversations, hosted by the Academy of Integrative Mental Health. The Academy expands knowledge to professionals in the mental health community and beyond using a conscious, experiential, and evidence-based format. Our mission is to deliver comprehensive health and wellness to all by empowering personal and professional growth and confidence. To learn more, visit us at www.academyimh.com. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, this is Laurel Sims-Stewart, content developer with the Academy of Integrative Mental Health and your host for today's conversation. I'm so excited to share this episode with Elisa Stamps on the intersection of eating disorders and children of narcissistic parents. Because according to one recent literature review done by the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, the prevalence of eating disorders in the United States has jumped from 3.5% in 2006 to 7.8% in 2018, which is a pretty significant increase. And that was even pre-pandemic when that data was collected. And I know there has been so much challenge throughout COVID for those of us that deal with disordered eating or just have difficult relationships with food and our bodies. And I also know a lot of my own clients have been coming in with questions about narcissism, gaslighting, and lots of other terms that have recently become a part of popular language, especially on social media. So that's why I'm so grateful and I was so grateful for the chance to learn more about these topics from Elisa, who's really a true expert in these realms. But before we get started, I wanted to give you all an update about what we have been up to here at the Academy. So we just launched our resource starter pack for January, Cultivating Compassionate Beginnings. Our monthly starter packs include blog posts, worksheets for clients, practice handouts that you can use in sessions and for yourself, and more. Plus, if you sign up for our newsletter, you also get access to our monthly curated playlist that goes along with the theme of each starter pack, and that's maybe kind of my personal favorite part. Um, So don't forget to check the show notes for a link to sign up for our newsletter, and you can get access to all of our resources and starter packs, so the starter pack for January and all of our previous starter packs through our website www.academyimh.com. And remember that all of our podcast listeners can get 10% off any course or resource starter pack with the code conversations. All right, enough for me. Let's get the conversation started. Our guest today is Elisa Stamps, MSS LCSW. Elisa is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in Philadelphia. She specializes in working with adult children of narcissists and runs a support group for these individuals entitled Shattering the Mirror. She also has experience in the treatment of eating disorders and complex trauma. Elisa's postgraduate work has included a three-year gestalt therapy training program, level one certification in internal family systems therapy, level one certification in Dr. McBride's five-step recovery model for treating adult children of narcissistic parents, as well as training in somatic and embodiment work. Elisa received a bachelor's of music education degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and was a vocal music director and professional actress for many years. She then went on to receive her Master of Social Service degree from Bryn Mawr College's Graduate School of Social Work and Social Research. 
She also recently released a book this past summer called The Gaslighting Recovery Journal, which I am so excited to talk to her about and has started a YouTube channel focused on gaslighting and other educational topics in her field. So let's get right into our conversation and full disclosure for our listeners, Elisa has been so um, gracious to re-record with me. This is, we went ahead and um, had our whole conversation and then had some post-production issues. So thank you, Elisa, for being willing to be back here and have a second conversation with me. I'm so excited to re-engage around all of this and learn more from you. Wow, thanks. I'm thrilled to be here again. And right, like it's kind of par for the course with how the last two years have gone. We just have to be flexible and pivot, right? (laughs) Yes, that is the theme for life in general. So I appreciate that. Um, So just, yeah, just for our our listeners, and I would love to um, learn more just about your background and how this has impacted your path to the work that you do and just give us a little background about yourself to get us started. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think you, you read my bio, which is always a little weird to hear about yourself in that way, but, um, yeah, I kind of, I'm a career changer. So I had several different careers before I arrived at this one, which I feel, you know, really helped the journey to arrival of this one. Um, So I have a private practice in Philadelphia. I see folks individually, and then I do run a group for adult children of narcissists, and I specialize in that area, as well as disordered eating and body image struggles. Um, I, let's see, what else about myself? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, what's really interesting is always how we arrive at things. So the arrival at what I specialize in has been kind of a two path sort of journey uh, through my own recovery of being raised in a narcissistic family system. And Mm -hmm. then also what I noticed when working with folks struggling with eating disorders was kind of this, this theme of a lot of them coming from narcissistic family backgrounds. And um, the group that I run started over two years ago kind of evolving from noticing that theme and um, still running, obviously. And that's kind of what brought me to the specialty areas that I'm in. Mm, That's so cool. I love, I I think that's um, so real that so many of us in this work have that personal connection and that's how we end up doing what we do. But um, that combination of things, I think might seem to some people as like not surprising but just like not an immediate immediately obvious connection and but at the same time like as you talk about it and I think probably you have a whole a group like this is your specialty now I know in my work um I think there are very obvious themes when you do start engaging with more people who are dealing with these issues that that these things are so intertwined and interconnected right and I think we're seeing even more of these ideas come into like general conversation I hear more people talking about narcissists and like um gaslighting and and all of these terms so I I think it's really um, helpful and important to have somebody that knows what they're talking about (laughs) with this. Um, So could you tell us what are some 
like narcissism 101 components that are most helpful to know for either someone who's just brand new to these concepts or someone who maybe who has heard those words or those terms floating around, um, but could really benefit from some specific clinical like expertise on understanding them. Yeah, sure. So I always use narcissism as a spectrum. I should say Mm -hmm. that right off the bat. Um, There are some people that are absolutely textbook narcissists, and then some that fall, you know, in various places on the spectrum. And um, in that sort of cluster, you also may have people with borderline traits or histrionic traits, which is like a a diagnosis in the the DSM. So that's first Mm -hmm. and foremost. Um, the, The core fear of the narcissist is the fear of abandonment. So that's mm-hmm. something to keep in mind when you're noticing their various ways of acting out. It's usually because that core fear of abandonment has been activated. They also operate on sort of this all or nothing idealization devaluation you know, game plan. So they can love bomb you in one breath and then sweep the rug out from underneath you with criticism in the next. So things to keep in mind there. Um, Another thing that they absolutely lack the ability to do is to have empathy, even for their own children. So that's, that is a quintessential narcissistic slash borderline slash histrionic trait is they just, they are unable to feel empathy. And, and that's sometimes a clue as to um, when we know that maybe we're dealing with somebody that has these narcissistic traits. It's all born, too, of childhood trauma. And a lot of times it's intergenerational, so you can kind of trace how it's trickled down, right? Like, so maybe your mother's the narcissist, and then it was her mother, and then it was your grandmother's father, or, or so on. So just kind mm-hmm. of a little, you know, a little background there. And the other thing is it's very different from just your ordinary run-of-the-mill toxic family system. So I think it's always important to, um, you know, when you're seeking out your own support, finding somebody that really specializes in it because the nuances that make it unique are are different than other family systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can, can you say a little bit more about that? Because I do often, like as a clinician, I often have clients who um, maybe have been in a toxic relationship or have really, are really trying to break out or of or understand um, an unhealthy family dynamic and are asking questions like, is my mom a narcissist? You know, and, and of course we can say like, well, these are the traits, right? It's born of childhood trauma. They they lack the ability to feel empathy. How do you, I guess, go about differentiating that for your client or like the people that you work with who aren't clinicians? Sure, sure. I mean, I think one of the telltale signs for me, even when I'm working with a client, let's say that maybe does skew on that personality disorder spectrum. If I'm getting that sort of visceral feeling or that kind of, oh, wow, I don't feel good enough in their presence. They're wanting more. I'm not able to give it. Or if we begin to question self in those ways of like, well, wait a minute, maybe they're right. Maybe I did say that. Maybe, oh, maybe I am the one that's angry all the time. You know what I mean? Like when, when there is yeah. that questioning of self, I think that's a, 
a red flag to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. And I wonder now as you're bringing that up, like that feels to me that questioning of self and that like build up over time of like lack of trust in ourself as a very, very easy pathway into the eating disorder world. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Because so much of my way of looking at that in, in just one piece of the puzzle is like that breaking of trust in you yourself and in your body and, and that like splitting of that relationship with those parts of yourself. Um, so do you find that, that that is a p- component as well? 100%. Um, yeah. Trust, you know, lack of trust in self feeling. I mean, the ultimate core feeling then that children of narcissists walk away with is not feeling good enough. So, right. So that plays into mm-hmm. the body image piece. Um, the idea of containment or trying to make ourselves small or almost invisible because of the narcissist in our life who, um, you know, we have learned how to meet their needs and their emotions and their desires and suppress ours. So that can lead to that sort of shutdown and that disconnect with body and that wanting to be small as well. Um, so all things that, that definitely contribute. And then I would say also, especially, I hate to, you know, exclusion, exclude it to just gender, but in the case of narcissistic mothers and daughters, there is that projection of the narcissistic mother hating her own body and then projecting that all over the daughter. Mm. So it's like a taking on, it's not just a taking on of someone else's needs that is part of it, but it's also like a taking on of their story as you're like minimizing your story or putting it away or making it so small that you, you like hold someone else's (laughs) like self in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's done at such an early age that it's really hard to decipher. Well, wait, is that it's gotta be my stuff because it's my parent telling me all this, you know? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. That is such a tricky, like ball of yarn to unravel, you know, I think. um, And that idea of not just making your internal world small, but making your physical body small is, I mean, so it, I just like think about it and it's so like resonant with me because that is such like a, we, I don't think people think about it that way. People think about like making yourself small as, as like a positive, which like so much of our culture is wrapped up in like, be as, be as small as you possibly can to be feminine or to be um, validated or approachable, you know, all of these things. But it's also about like shrinking yourself yes. in these terms in the face of someone else who's just taking over. Yeah. Great way to, to put it. Shrinking ourselves, shrinking ourselves to fit with the narcissist ideals. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so how do you, how do you start this conversation with your client? Like, do your clients come to you typically because they're struggling with their, their eating and their bodies? Do they come to you because they're struggling with toxic family systems and then the body stuff comes up later? Is it a mix? Like how does this manifest (laughs) like in your daily work? Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Sure. I mean, it used to be because before I specialized in adult children and narcissists, I was only specializing in eating disorders. And Mm -hmm. then it sort of crept up when clients would talk about maybe the relationship with their mother or their mother's own eating um, behaviors or, you know, so it would come up that way. And, and now I think I'm to the point where, um, you know, people are coming to me specifically because they've done their own research and they believe that they're coming from a narcissistic family system. And then yeah. maybe we're kind of unpacking some of the body stuff, some of the eating stuff. And, and we come to realize, oh, oh yeah, my mother did tell me those things. My mother did control my food you know, my brother was allowed to eat whatever he wanted. I wasn't, you know what I mean? So like, we just, we, we begin to unpack the stories and, and connect the patterns. Yeah. Is that a common theme that you see in families with siblings? Is that like a a parent who has narcissistic tendencies will like split the siblings and kind of mm, project more onto one than another? Like, yeah. yeah. 100%. So, um, you know, you have those family roles, you have the golden child who is usually alliance with the narcissist because they've learned how to play the game and they know it's better to be here than over here where the scapegoat is. Right. So that's the one that everybody blames is blamed for their, you know, problems in the family problems at school or work. You have the family mascot, who's the one that tries to always smooth everything over, uses humor, and then you have sort of that neglected, forgotten child. So mm-hmm. um, it's usually the narcissist and some some sibling, and then the others over here. And it could rotate, right, depending upon who is maybe challenging the narcissist at the time. But I think it's really rare that sibling relationships remain intact because of all the splitting and the triangulation that happens in these family systems as well. Mm, interesting. So is that, is, is that what you're like saying as like adult sibling relationships very often aren't intact anymore when somebody's coming to you for like, that's something that you would look, look out for as well. Yeah. Um, I would say maybe they've already begun yeah. to, you know, hold boundaries against a sibling or realizing that, you know, this sibling was the golden child or was the scapegoat. Um, And, and if they're coming to me specifically to begin setting those boundaries with the narcissist, um, chances are that the other members of the family will have some feelings about that. And you know, it's, it's kind of like leaving a cult. Yeah. The cult, some, it, a lot of times it's usually yourself and you got to leave everybody else that's still in that enmeshment there. If that makes so sense. how do you, yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. How, what do you find, I guess, is um, the most helpful way to support someone in setting those boundaries? Because I know that like in my work and I'm sure our listeners, if, if they're in a clinical um, role, we are so isolated in this year and like lacking in community and, and lacking in relationships. Um, I've found that it sometimes has been really challenging to support people in 
setting boundaries with some of the only connections they have, Yes, you know? So how do you do that? Like, what are the things that you do to support your clients in that really, really tough work? Well, first of all, I have to go at the pace of the client. Sure. Absolutely. um, You know, I can't just say, well, it's time to start setting those. That's never going to work. And sometimes I have to walk a really fine line if they're not even at the point where they're acknowledging, oh, this is really toxic for me to remain in this relationship. So we just, um, we explore the possibilities. We explore what it might be like to consider setting a boundary here or there. You know, if they're able to, maybe they don't pick up the phone every once in a while, or they don't return a text right away. How did that feel? What was that like? You know, we're just, and, and meanwhile, we're trying to help them arrive into their true authentic selves, because that's something I also think that's really impossible. If we're still so enmeshed in that family system, how can we be who we were meant to be? We can't, we're, we're trying to be everything the narcissist has projected on us to be. So part of the work too, is helping folks kind of begin to really love, you know, begin that journey of exploring and loving themselves and, and finding out what their own likes and dislikes are, their own desires and wishes are. So coming at it from a couple angles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that would be, be very naturally like feeding of each other, right? Like as you discover more things about yourself, even small things, it would build a foundation to set some of those boundaries. So, yeah. yeah, And it's my job too. I really feel like to um, uphold boundaries in the client therapist relationship, because if they're coming from systems where the boundaries are so muddled or non-existent, you know, how do they even know how or what a boundary looks like, what it feels like when somebody sets them. So it's really my job to protect that in the therapeutic alliance also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I hear that. And I think like that's something so magical about the work that we do is just like being in relationship with people Yes, um, is part option. of the work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's very relational. Um, so I want to kind of shift because I also definitely want to talk about like the, the body component and, and eating disorder component. What are some of the most common themes or maybe even some of the most common misconceptions that you encounter when you work with clients who come to you to heal their relationships with food and their bodies and, um, what is, the driving point for you to like help them focus on in clearing all of that up? Yeah. So (laughs) it's challenging because as you said before, we are a society where, you know, the tinier we are, the better we are. We have been hammered to believe that there's good food and bad food and healthy eating and non-healthy eating. So a lot of my job at the beginning is starting to really debunk some of those myths. Um, And that (laughs) we've also somehow spun it that if you eat bad food, you are bad. Oh, good. You are good. Right. So yeah. What (laughs) I saw. I'm so glad. 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just, yeah, like, no, I'm so glad it. you said that. Like that morality that we place on food is, oh, it comes up all the time. I hear people talk about all the time and it's such, I feel like that's one of the hardest pieces to dismantle from, yeah. from me. Like, because it's, it's not just, um, quote unquote, like a, DSM eating disorder thing. It's a it's a societal thing. Oh. How do we do that? Yep. When when it's the water that we're swimming in, right? Yeah. So I'm just chipping away. When someone's like, "Oh, I was so bad." Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? You were bad. Let's let's you know get in there. I gotta. I'm just chipping away at all these you know again gaslighting projections that the diet industry now the wellness industry because they know we've caught on to them has projected on us. So, um, you know, I'm trying to help people just realize that food is just food and it's about the food, but it's not about the food. It's about our relationship with the food. And let's start there. And, um, the less we actually have to even think about food, the more our bodies will just do, we can trust again, there's that word trust that they're just going to do what they're supposed to do. And they're going to find their happy place to settle. And we don't have to feel bad or good about Mm -hmm. any of what people have told us we have to feel bad or good about. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I would imagine that when you're coming from a system in which it wasn't just a societal message that you're bad or good based on, what you ate or what you look like, but there's a direct, maybe vocally direct message at you that this is a black and white, like if you do this, you're okay. If you do this, you're not okay. That makes it even harder. I would imagine to chip away at that. Yeah. Yeah. And food is used to show love. Food is used to punish, right? Oh, you're going to bed without dessert. There's your punishment, right? We're using food um, you know, I've worked with folks too, that come from really, uh, sort of that neglectful narcissistic family system where there maybe was even food insecurity where they were the ones as children that had to figure out how to go to the grocery store, how to cook the meals because their parents, their narcissistic parents, you know, left the building essentially. And so, um, you know, there's that component with it all too. So it's, it's pretty complex. Um, yeah, there's a lot to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned like the, the neglectful narcissistic dynamic is, are there different sort of different subsections that we do think we can think about when we're operating with this framework, as far as like how this manifests, because I think a lot of people who don't specialize in this sort of just have um, like a more classic idea and wouldn't see a parent like leaving and food insecurity as a result of narcissism. Right. So it sounds like it's can be very covert. Right. So, you know, you generally have the engulfing narcissistic parent, ignoring narcissistic parent, and then sometimes a mix where mm-hmm. you never, you don't quite know what you're going to get on a daily basis. Um, and each one comes with different, you know, different, um, offshoots of that. 
I, I'm thinking of a call I had with a prospective group member. And, you know, it's, it's so, it's so hard to decipher, especially I think in that sort of enmeshed engulfing parent where you almost wish, no, I wish they were ignoring, or I wish that I was just, you know, really physically abused because then I could justify, but when they're sort of this dance of, I love you, I hate you. It's, it's so hard for the child in that system to like figure it all out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, when you think, I, I guess about like from an attachment perspective too, of how that could manifest in your own attachment to things, including your body and including yourself and including food, you know, you, and, and I think like, wow, if, if I were in that position, I would really just want some like simple solutions and and for something to be quote unquote, like easy to figure out and controlling food, I think might be a natural route for that. Right. If, if my relationship doesn't make logical sense or I don't know what I'm going to get, well, here's something I definitely know what I can get. Does that, is that, what you see happen. Yeah. And I think we can do it with anything, right? We can do it with food, sure. we can do it with addiction, shopping, love, sex, self-harm. Um, Cause we can count on that. It's, you know, in Gestalt, we call that a creative adjustment. It's, it's saved our lives many a time, you know, it's the constant and, and we mm-hmm. have some control over it. And I, I think that's an interesting perspective as well, that moment of recognition that some of these things that we're trying to heal from or work our way out of have actually saved us. Yeah. And and that can be such an odd juxtaposition of ideas, but it's, it is so true. Like so much of what we do like gets us to this point, right? And so- Absolutely that adds another layer of do I even want to work out of this? Like, (laughs) like this has kept me going, you know? Yeah. So there we meet the client there, right? Well, yeah. What do you like about your eating disorder? What has it given you? You know, what would it be like to explore maybe reducing it a little bit here and there or trying something different, you know? We're just, we're going to go at the pace of the the client. Yeah, absolutely. Is that scary for clients to be in control in that way when they're coming from a narcissistic, you know, to like be um, allowed to make decisions and, and to have opinions and those kinds of things? Yeah, I think sometimes they don't even know, you know, and I'll speak for myself. If somebody asks me sometimes, well, what do you, what I remember in my Gestalt training, I had an instructor, I was busy, like, cause I was in school, grad school at the time doing the training. So on lunch, I'm doing like schoolwork and this trainer instructor comes over to me and he's like, well, what are your hobbies? And I was like, uh, uh, and I like, he left, it was an hour later when he came back and I was like, um, I like to downhill ski like I couldn't even answer the question and I think that happens so often that people coming from this you know our likes and dislikes are based on the whims of the narcissist so there's never room for us to be able it's 
it's really hard. Sometimes it's easier to say what we don't like or don't want versus like what actually feels like it fits for us. Mm, Yeah. I think it sounds like that could be a good starting point though, right? Is that where you often start is just, okay, well, if you're not really sure what you like, what don't you like? Let's talk about that first. Yeah. And then how was it to come up with that versus, Mm -hmm. you know, what was that like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. So does that come into play too, like as far as rebuilding our relationship with food and movement as well, I would imagine? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I love that you said movement because I am really trying to not use the word exercise at all. I'm trying to use physical movement or, um, you know, physical activity. And then like, let's bring enjoyment in. What do we actually like to do with our bodies? Not what we feel like we have to do. What do we like to do? Yeah. going to sustain, right? What's not going to sustain is when we spend two hours exercising because we ate something yesterday that was bad or that we don't like our bodies and then we're punishing. Yeah. And I think like just generally in our world, people, if you were to just ask somebody on the street to tell, talk about the idea of exercise, I think a lot of people would frame it as um, like a punishment or at least like as a um, transactionary something like I have to exercise in order to burn off this or to take care of that. Right. Rather than that's why I do like to use the word movement. And I'm glad you, (laughs) you mentioned that because it's like shifting this mindset away from moving our body as a punishment and from our body being something that even that needs to be punished. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how, how much have we needed those kind of nature walks or like, you know, a bike ride during this time? I'm all for moving your body. I think it can do so many beautiful things for us. You know, if there's anxiousness, it can really help release that trapped frenetic energy. Um, You know, but like, let's look at it as to what we're receiving from it for our souls, not for like my stomach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. You mentioned a little ways back this idea of like the generational passing down of um, maybe narcissistic traits or that family dynamic. But what comes up for me also is the generational passing down of just body trauma and like holding that and needing to reclaim joy and enjoyment and um, like healing from movement yeah not like if from that perspective too it's like a generational thing where our you know we're all carrying all of this junk from this year and yes probably as far back as we can go right and so it's really a radical idea to think about movement as for enjoyment and healing I think yeah I mean goodness knows we need it now more than ever And even my clients that don't typically present with disordered eating or, you know, body image struggles have, it's come up during this time. It's come up during this time where we've had to really, again, pivot and change our lives and adjust and readjust 
as to how we go about our daily routine. Um, but like, oh my gosh, there's enough in this world to feel worried about. Like, let's not add, you know, that we went up a gene size to that list. Right. Absolutely. I agree. I wish, I wish, I wish our world felt the same, but we're just chipping away at it little bit by little bit. I know. Um, but it's so, oh gosh, I just think about how difficult that even just that idea is, you know, how much work it takes to unlearn the idea of a gene size. Right. Yeah. Um, I think the younger generation, I mean, I have a daughter who's, um, you know, Gen Z, and I think they have a whole, hopefully different perspective. And there's so much more body positivity and inclusivity in their generation. So I'm hopeful that things are shifting. Me too. I agree. I think that there is a lot more really valuable dialogue happening around some of these ideas, and especially with people younger than me. Bless them. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for them to, to get some work done. Um, but it's almost like this. I see this parallel almost between what, what you talk about in your work with like the narcissistic family dynamic and like our larger world, like is the diet industry, a narcissistic parent that we've all been living with for all of these years? Uh, yeah. Yeah. They use gaslighting manipulation, all the things that great cult leaders do. They do. Why? Because they have to make their money. They need you to come back. They know they're going to fail. They're counting on that. So then you come back, you feel more like a failure. There's more shame. You're going to work harder until the next time and the next time and the next time. Right? So it's, I mean, it's all a big ruse. (laughs) I know. It's like it's so interesting because it it really is just like so many of us I think in you know I grew up in uh the like the United States like in the 90s and the 2000s right in that world and that culture that wasn't just like an opinion that was just truth. Right. You know? Yeah. And so really this is like a reframing of like what is your truth? It's like going from seeing black and white to seeing color or something. Absolutely. Um, And our ideals, you know, I mean, what is, what are we supposedly striving for? It's a very, you know, binary example of a white, thin, tall, blonde female. That's what we've been told is the ideal. And we need to debunk that myth. You know, same thing with the BMI. Do not get me started on the BMI. We can have a whole episode on that, my friend. Oh, my. Yes, we could. And I I get so mad that, you know, doctors still use it. It wasn't even started by a doctor. Like, come on, people. What are we doing? Yeah. So I know what you're talking about because that is one of my, like, so boxes and I get like real fired up about it. But for our listeners who are like, Laurel, what? (laughs) Alisa, what? Tell us, talk a little bit about why we're getting so fired up about the BMI. Gosh. So there's a great article called The Bizarre and Racial History of the BMI. Um, I have read that one. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. Um, And it was started by a white male 
for white males for eugenic purposes. So it was a way to like control breeding of people that were of color, lower socioeconomic levels um, that maybe had you know, mental health disorders or cognitive disorder. It was a way to control that. It, so not taking ethnicity into it, not taking identifying females into it. I mean, it, to me, and it, the, the person who started, I believe, was a sociologist, not, not a doctor, not a medical doctor. And then, um, you know, we used it as this measure of like, if you're here, you're not obese. If you're here, you are obese. And then I think in the 80s, they changed the requirements. So literally overnight, people who weren't obese all of a sudden found themselves obese. So it's like, it's based in nothing except racism and misogyny. Right. Yeah, right. Woo! Thank you for giving that little, the the spiel, because I think like there are so many people that just not their fault at all, but just don't know because that is like, I mean, there are apps out there right now. I will not name them that (laughs) say that they're based in like behavioral health and, and psychological tools, you know, they base their goals for you on the BMI. Yeah, and so that is the one I believe you're talking about rhymes with the word boom. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's again, there's nothing like, you know, people are like, oh, it's so great because it's got psychological. No, guess what, my friends? It's just Weight Watchers rebranded. Yes, it is. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. Just gas- paying money to be gaslighted. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and there's the gaslighting. Absolutely right? There's the gaslighting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I know we could, there are so many, like, there are so many things as far as like diet, what diet culture has like trained us so well to be okay with. Right. Um, But gaslighting is, is one of those things. I feel like every day I'm gaslighted by the world around my body um, and around my physical appearance, right? And apps that tell me this is a therapeutic way to be smaller than I am. Um, You know, just (laughs) so many things. But I'm curious, you have like educational resources on gaslighting. You have a book I really want to talk about the gaslighting recovery journal. Um, and, but I, I really would like for our listeners, for you to just give us like a brief elevator speech about how you like, how you talk about gaslighting. What do you really see that it is? Because I think I'm glad it's becoming more, um, like there's more awareness in the popular lexicon around it. But I think to, to really um, use it like, you know, as a, a knowledge tool that can help us grow and heal. Like we really have to understand it for what it is and not for some of the ways that I think like people are like throwing it around that aren't accurate or helpful. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I I thank you for bringing that up because it is a word that we're hearing all the time. And I don't think it's always being used correctly, which then can diminish the, you know, profoundness of it. In fact, somebody, a a publication approached me um, to be like a feature in this article on that topic of somebody using the word 
and like how do we correctly use it? So it's really a tactic used by, let's say, the narcissist um, to implant this sort of psychological doubt in their targets. So, you know, it's through manipulation, word salad, kind of misleading dances of back and forth. But the whole intent is to plant the psychological doubt and make it so that the target then comes to the narcissist as sort of the expert. So there's a play and a movie called Gaslight. That's where it originated. And, um, you know, this husband in the movie was basically trying to slowly chip away at his wife's sanity. And so she would come into the room and the gas lights would be dimmer, which he had done. And she would ask, you know, oh, it seems like it's darker in here. Well, no, it's not. And, you know, what are you talking about? Well, I think it's, you know, it was brighter a moment ago. And no, no, it's always been this, right? So there's the psychological doubt starting to question ourselves. Well, oh, oh, maybe I, yeah, I guess I didn't, you know, or this husband would move things around the house, like take a vase off the mantle, put it on the table. Well, wasn't that vase always there? No, no, no. It was always on the table, right? So it's just crazy making. And we learn to second guess ourselves and have all the self-doubt. And that is what gaslighting is. And you know, we in this country, particularly in the previous administration, and I guess probably still going on, are gaslit at a macro level on a daily basis, on a daily basis. So, right, if these supposed pillars of authority are telling us something different than what we just saw, right? And it's a cult tactic too. It's it's how cult leaders achieve their rise to popularity. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's proven tactics that then make people question themselves and then follow the person who's utilizing those tactics. Yeah. So it's happening on every level, which is true and also really frightening. <laughs> Can you like, are there some examples that come to your mind of like, if our, if our listeners like truly are just be- brand new beginners to understanding this, like how, what might come up in a conversation or what they might notice and feel in their body? Um, obviously like the questioning that doubt coming up. Right. Yeah. Um, but are there specific like things that we might hear from people just like, oh, you didn't say that you said this or, you know, that's not how you feel. Yeah. Or, oh, I mean, I was only joking. Can't you take a joke? Mm. Big one, you know, oh, you're so sensitive. I didn't mean it like that. Right. So it's just chipping away, chipping away at our own truth. And so it's really, really important to stand in our truth, plant that flag of truth and keep those boundaries. Yeah. So are there practices or ways that you um, help people explore like, okay, well, how, like, let's figure out how to stand in our truth and how to figure out what that is when on so many levels over and over again, we've been told that we can't trust ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it might be beginning with really small things where we have a conversation, let's say with our narcissist, and maybe we write down the details or specifics, concrete items 
And then we have them to look at, oh, no, 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 that's right. I did say that. I wrote it down, you know, starting there. Um, I think it's it's beginning to like debunk some of the myths that the narcissists tell us. And, you know, like, let's look at, oh, you're telling me that your narcissist apologized to you, but like, is that really an apology when somebody says, well, I'm sorry for the way you felt when I said that, right? Like, let's, uh, let's unthread that a little bit because there's some gaslighting in there. There's some manipulation in there. So it's mm -hmm. starting with little small things to take them apart. Yeah. And it sounds like it's really about identifying facts, like helping people like be able to have just like a visualization or a, a specific definition or label for things that is still maybe outside of themselves for a moment, mm -hmm. right? On a piece of paper or from you, like what's the definition of an apology, right? So that they can hear another outside source and then start to take that inward. Right, right. Because narcissists have a very interesting relationship with the truth. Their truth is not the truth. It is their version of the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you ever heard, I'm sure you have, but I'm curious about your take on it, that um, saying that a, an accusation from a narcissist is actually a confession? Yeah. What is, what is your take on that? Because I've heard it floating around and I don't actually know like if that's something that occurs or if that's just like an internet meme. No, no, no. I think it does occur. <laughs> I mean, maybe a little both there. Maybe uh, a little both, yeah. So I'm 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 supervising actually another clinician that is working with a client that is like on the borderline narcissistic spectrum. And we were talking about how this client um has recently found this like group of people to hang out with, but then will constantly be like, well, they're you know, they're not as intelligent and they're really boring. And, you know, they just, they don't have the confidence. And I said to the clinician, I'm like, well, you just heard every single thing that that client feels poorly about with themselves. And they were like, whoa, yeah. So when, when they're projecting on us and telling us you're too sensitive and, you know, you're so mean and that's them confessing every, they're taking every part of about them, their emotional worlds that they either don't understand or despise and then attacking it in someone else. And that is, it's their stuff. That's just been, you know, spewed all over us. Right. Right. Yeah. Because it's that whole, like, it's that hole that's, that's, something has reached in and poked and it hurts so right. badly. They have to just rage over it yeah. or project over it. Yeah. So, I've, you know, get it off of ourselves, put it back where it belongs. It doesn't belong on us. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think also about what you said earlier in our conversation about the body piece, you know, a, a narcissistic mother being really insecure about maybe her body. And so, right placing a lot of rules and restrictions or um, expectations on their yep. child's body. Yep. Yep. And it's something really, really to be mindful of. It's something I really have to be mindful of because it was done to me. 
and I can, I see myself sometimes, you know, looking at my daughter's body and thinking things. And then I have to like, whoa, wait, is that yours stuff that you're actually, you know, but it's important to be mindful so that we begin to break the patterns. Right. Oh yeah. So what I hear you saying then is like, as we can be so hurt and carry so much pain around that, then maybe we can start projecting again and turn into like, turn into that parent in a way if we're not mindful of it. And if we're not working um, to be thoughtful and heal from that. Yeah. I mean, and the belief systems that were projecting us that, you know, you have to have a flat stomach or your, your legs should be longer. Right. Like, and then if we start seeing ourselves placing that on others, we got to do our own work there. We, we need to take a look at that. Yeah. So what would your, um, what would you say are some of the most important things for other clinicians to keep in mind when they're encountering some of these themes um, in their own work? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing is, please don't tell your client that, you know, oh, but it's your mother. You only have one mother. It's your family. You sure you don't want to try and work it out? Please don't tell them that. And please, if you don't know about narcissistic stuff and you suspect maybe there is some of that, reach out to other clinicians that specialize in it or refer your client to somebody that specializes in it. There's nothing more damaging to somebody than adding to the gaslighting by saying, well, you know, your mother was just, she was just meaning well, like, let's, let's not do those things. Yeah. Oof. And I would imagine since as many, many of us are, are healers and helpers and we want to repair, um, so badly, <laughs> the things that are, are help people repair so badly, like that could be a pitfall that we would have to really be mindful of is um, not making the decision either way for our clients of being okay with this relationship and we're going to restore it or setting more strict boundaries or anywhere on the spectrum. Right. Right. And being okay as a therapist with, you know, no contact might actually be what's best for your client in terms of their narcissistic family system. Yeah not pull mother in to try and do therapy with her with your client let's eh, let's not do that either Mm -hmm. do you have um do you have clients that approach you and want to do family therapy with their parents yes Mm -hmm. and I quickly say that I don't do that yeah and um you know I'm going to start with like you know a lot of times people will come to me on wanting me to help them get their partner or a parent to like change their behaviors and uh, no, 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 no. We're going to start with you. We're going to look here. This is where the change starts. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about the book, because I'm sure that that is a helpful tool for for all of this work. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm excited to hear. It came out in July. Um, and it's, uh, you know, a journal of sorts that has various prompts and exercises 
arranged in different categories um, around like healing from gaslighting and emotional abuse. So it's, it's a tool it's to be used maybe in conjunction with other things. And I was like to say that people can, you know, use it as needed, whatever pace feels right for them. I would definitely say once you complete it, kind of see if you want to go back and start it again, because we're always in different places. Um, you know, when we're looking at things like that, I tried to arrange it so that the prompts and exercises build upon one another. So maybe you did something in chapter one that you can then revisit in chapter three and check in with so that they, they kind of build, you know, um, sequentially. And um, yeah, I, I hope people find it helpful and, and healing. And it's, you know, it's your own space. It's your own place for your thoughts, your feelings. Yeah, I know. That's really cool. I love that. It's, I love the ideas of, of using like a journal um, in that healing with such specific prompts rather than just like, here's a resource on narcissism <laughs> so that you can really like yeah. have that space as you're reading to think about your own experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so cool. And would you recommend it? Is, is it truly like, would it be a best fit for people who know, like "Mm, I'm breaking out of a, a narcissistic family pattern or a narcissistic relationship or are there um, prompts and things in there that anybody could maybe benefit from? I mean, I think, I think it's a little of both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we can all learn how to caretake for ourselves better. So like I put something in there about like getting a plant and caring for the plant. And what does that feel like to care for something else? And then like, how can we apply that for our own care? You know, so there's a little bit of, of stuff in there for everybody. Um, noticing our, our macro boundaries too. And what do we notice as we're just kind of moving around our world and our neighborhood and what does it feel like to see, uh, you know, even just a fence around somebody's yard as a like physical boundary? And so, you know, I tried to put stuff in there that makes us, you know, kind of explore and think a little bit. Oh, that's so cool. I can't wait to check it out. Where can we purchase it for our yeah. listeners? Sure. So um, I'll, I'll hold it up to you just so people can yeah. see what it looks like. Um, cool. Yeah, thanks. So it's definitely it's on Amazon. You can also go to my website and I have a link directly to my to the book on my website. So, you know, my website's um www.alisastamps.com. I think Target I was on Target's website and I think I checked there they have it. Oh, um, cool. Noble. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who's going into Target buying. <laughs> I mean, hey, you never know. <laughs> um, so yeah, so, you know, feel free to check it out. And, and again, you know, if you want to look at some excerpts first, um, that'd be great too. Oh, cool. Oh, awesome. Well, you know, you really made it when your books on sale at Target. So <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, that's actually, that's so exciting. I'm so thrilled for you. Cause I know the first time we talked, it hadn't come out yet. And so I was like, waiting so I'm really look it looks beautiful for those of our our listeners who are just listening and can't see the cover is gorgeous um it looks really really nice um and we will make sure to link 
those things in the show notes too, so that people can have that handy. Um, yeah. So that people can get their hands on that resource. It sounds awesome. Thank yeah. you. So we're starting to wind down and I want to be mindful of your time. Um, but we always ask one question at the end of our show for all of our listeners um, and for all of our guests is, is there a practice that or a tool that we can talk about or something that you and I can do right now that can give us a taste of the work that you do um, and that mental health or integrative health professionals might be able to use for themselves and their own care or with their clients? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, what comes to mind is kind of what I offer clients at the beginning of a session and in Gestalt, we call it sort of a getting there exercise. Um, so it's just sort of a, a, a grounding breathing moment. I'm happy to, should I guide? Yeah, let's do it. I'm, I'm here. Be yeah. my guide. I would love to experience that today. Yeah. So um, I would just say to, you know, find yourself in a comfortable place and um, bring the gaze downward or close eyes, whatever feels most comfortable. And just take a moment, seeing if we can arrive into body and breath. Maybe just leaning into the breath. Noticing the inhales and exhales and trying to make the exhale a little bit longer than the inhale. And just bringing to awareness anything that's with us, be it physiological or emotional. Noticing any muscle tension, aches or pains, not necessarily trying to adjust anything, but just meeting ourselves where we are. And then perhaps finishing by taking in a breath together. So we'll breathe in for four counts. We'll hold the air in place in our bodies for four counts. And we'll release the air for four counts. So together, here we go. Breathing in one, two, three, four. Holding the air one, two, three, four. Releasing it one, two, three, and then just bringing ourselves back into the space whenever we feel ready. Thank you for that. That was beautiful. Man, we should have done that at the beginning. I don't know what I was doing waiting until the end. Um, but you know what I noticed, what I really appreciated about that is when you said not to make any adjustments because I'm so conditioned to that idea of noticing like aches or pains or tightness and, and like actively releasing it. But I love that moment of not having to do anything and just noticing. Yeah. Yep. And my goodness, if we just noticed stuff and then didn't do anything else, you know, what could that offer? Mm. Oh, perfect. That's a perfect way to end. <laughs> Mic drop. All done. All done for today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so where can you, I know you said your website, is there anywhere else that people can find you that we can put in the show notes as well so that they can continue to learn about you and about your work? Yeah. So, um, you know, my website and then you can find me on Instagram. I think it's alisastamps.therapist. And um, on there, <clears throat> excuse me, and also on my website um, are links to like the YouTube channel, the, the, the beginnings of a little tiny YouTube channel. Um, so feel free to check that out too. 
Okay, wonderful. Well, we'll make sure to put that all on there. Um, and thank you so, so much for your time today and for having a conversation with me. I have so enjoyed this second round. Yes. This was great. Me too. <laughs> second time is a charm. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, Elisa. I hope that um, you have a happy holiday season as we're recording this. We're moving into that time. And uh, we will hopefully talk again soon. Great. Thank you so much. You too. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. Don't forget to check out the show notes for all of the resources we mentioned in the episode, as well as additional resources from Elisa, including her YouTube channel and where you can purchase her book, The Gaslighting Recovery Journal. And remember, we want to hear from you too. Is there a topic you want to learn more about or a guest you think would be perfect for a conversation on our show? How can we support you as a mental health professional in 2022? Reach out to us at www.academyimh.com and let us know. We look forward to hearing from you. Take good care of yourself and we'll talk again soon. Bye.